I'm scared that I'm not myself in here, and I'm scared that I am. Other people aren't the scariest part of prison, Dina. It's coming face to face with who you really are. Because once you're behind these walls, there's nowhere to run, even if you could run. The truth catches up with you in there, Dina. And it's the truth that's gonna make you a bitch. Today, I have crippling anxiety and borderline depression. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty good right at this moment. But have you ever been nervous about talking to somebody and thought, hey, drinking a shit ton of caffeine will fix all my problems? Well, I tried that. It didn't work out so well for me. It kind of intensified everything, and the yeah wasn't wasn't a good mix. Um, so I have a very awesome episode for you. My home girl, B Casper, it comes on. She has a podcast. For anyone who doesn't know, it's you definitely check it out. It's called That Time I Got Arrested, and basically she tells all of these stories about the many times she's been arrested and apparently she's been arrested like over a hundred times and I vibe with that. She's super down to earth, super intelligent and articulate. Her podcast is amazing. It's much better than mine. It's, it sounds more professional. The content's better. She's just all around awesome person and shout outs to James if you're listening, James, I want to thank you because, you know, I was sitting in rehab one day on a, a secret burner phone and he sent me a message saying, hey, there's this um, this chick and she has this podcast called That Time I Got Arrested and I messaged her and told her about your podcast and she said she would be down to, to collab. And so I was like, oh, fuck yeah, okay, cool. Needless to say, I sent her a message and we were talking online here and there and um, uh, working out dates that we were both free to come to have her on my show and um, we finally got something down on on wax uh, so to speak so anyone listening please check it out and if anyone is listening for the first time definitely want to say this I've noticed you know I'm 
I'm fucking insane and I'm always checking the statistics and, you know, how many, how the, I don't know, the traction of, of this podcast. And there, you know, on our hosting site that shows like how many, you know, all these schematics of like how many likes you get on certain days and what are the top 10 most downloaded episodes. And I always see episode one on there. And <laughs> I just want to say my episode one, it was a little bit shit. You know, I was just like, I was probably like three days clean. Sounded like shit. <laughs> Didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So please just don't compare what I'm trying to do now with what I was doing back then. I was fucking green. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I didn't know anything about podcasting. I just kind of threw it out there. And I listened back to my first episode and I was like, wow, I just complain about my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> That's so petty and stupid of me. And it, it was pretty cringy. And I'm embarrassed for myself. What can I say? I try to improve, and I hopefully that's what's going on here. I really don't know. The wheels are off the truck, and I'm kind of just like sliding into the ravine when it comes to making this weird fucking silly show that I somehow did. Um, what else do I want to say? Um, so, if you guys don't know, when I first, when this project first started, I had a co-host, Ryan, and I'm trying to get him back on the show. I heard that he's doing much better. He was in and out of uh, relapsing off, you know, heroin and meth. You know, my my drug of choice during when I was fucking strung out. But um, I think he's on Suboxone and crashing at my friend's, well, my friend uh, Andre's house. And I think he's doing much better. So I'm going to try and get him back on the show. Our... You know, banter back and forth it was it was a good chemistry, and and it's been weird doing this whole podcast by myself uh, without him. So, looks like we will be reunited. So, uh, I don't know what else to say. I need to catch up on on following up with replying to emails, uh, messages, and this and that. It, it's I'm so overwhelmed and overloaded with having to keep up with. I'm really, I'm, I mean, I'm just going to say it flat out. I'm really been, been really bad and slacking on, um, on replying to people. And I apologize for that. I'm shot out the game and I have been without internet access for quite some time, but that will change. I promise I'm working on it. Please don't hate me. I love you. And I am, uh, I'm a dis I'm quite dysfunctional, so please be patient with me. I will get back to the responding to the emails. So yeah, the podcast, B Casper, that time I got arrested podcast, check it out wherever podcasts are available. And I thought, hey, you know what? Why don't I tell a jail story of my own? Cause it popped into my head. And maybe you all would like to hear it. This particular moment in my life. I'm in a drug program, it was adult drug court or ADC, and I was, you know, consuming Kratom, I've talked about Kratom many times, it helped curb my cravings for heroin, and apparently word had gotten out to the counselors that everyone in our little drug court group was taking Kratom, so now they're trying to crack down and bust people for taking Kratom. So, I end up stopping 
I, I stopped taking creatine because I'm paranoid. I, and uh, from you know they the counselors gave out this warning and they're like, we bought kratom drug tests so now we can test you for it and people are getting sanctions going to jail for weeks at a time and some people are scared and self-admit so they get less jail time and apparently the counselors know that i was taking kratom but they've been testing me and i somehow slipped through the cracks and didn't test dirty for kratom so now they're doing a bunch of shady shit like that will be in group and they'll they I, I won on one particular occasion they're like okay well we have two dirty tests for kratom and so you better self-admit right now or we'll see what happens in court on friday um because every friday there's uh, uh you actually in drug court you have to go to court on friday and check in with the judge and just check on your progress and if you get in trouble you go straight to jail and if you're doing good you get to you know leave and so you're regularly checking in with the courts on your progress through drug court. And then, you know, after, you know, when I'm in group hearing that, oh, there's two dirty tests for Kratom, I'm like, fuck, it might be me. And I'm starting to get very antsy and anxious and paranoid. But I don't say anything because I'm like, oh, it could be any one of these fuckheads that have a dirty Kratom test. And what actually, crazy enough, I go to court and no one goes to jail for dirty Kratom tests. And my friend John, he's been on the podcast, he goes up to our counselor and is like, hey, I thought you said there was two dirty Kratom tests, so why didn't anyone go to jail? And I shit you not, my drug court counselor said, oh, well, I just said that to get Brian to try and self-admit. And when John told me this, I was like, oh, wow, so you're preaching all this honesty and don't be dishonest and don't lie. And you lie to us, trying to scare us to self-incriminate ourselves. You, you motherfucker, that's... So I was a little resentful about that. And um, I get back on the Kratom because, you know, I see other people getting away with taking Kratom. And so I'm like, you know, fuck this. I'm going to start consuming Kratom again because, you know, that's this was like my only vice. You know, I gave up the heroin and, and everything else intravenous. So I'm, I'm going to take Kratom. And uh, on one weekend... I get a call from one of my ex-girlfriends. She's in LA. She wants to hang out. And um, and I'm like, and she's strung out on heroin. So my I got the brilliant idea like, oh, well, I'll, let's hang out and hook up because she wants to hook up. And I'm like, okay, great. This is going to be, this is going to be amazing. So I go down to LA and hang out with her for, you know, two days. And I drive down there. And uh, we go to, like, the Griffith Observatory, and we have this fun time. And I uh, <laughs> can't believe I'm going to say this, but we're driving down... Oh, I'm not going to say... We're driving downtown, and we're basically... <sighs> Fuck, I can't believe I'm going to say this. We're driving through downtown, and she unzips my pants, and she gives me road dome in downtown, and she's bent over with her ass facing the driver's side door... And she's not wearing any underwear. <laughs> and we go and take a right turn on, on some on some main street. And there's like, it's a broad daylight. There's 30 people downtown. And they all just get a, a face full of, of ass and, and genitalia while she's going down on me. And I'm driving through downtown. Can't believe I just admitted that. It's kind of embarrassing. Um, any, but anyway, we, we have this great day. We get a hotel. We have amazing sex, 
and uh, I end up she she talks me into giving her money so she can go buy heroin because you know she's gonna be sick so my enabling dumbass obliges and then and I end up not using heroin but I go back up and, you know I have kratom so I'm like whatever dude just you go on and do heroin that's fine I don't know why I thought that was a good idea going and hanging out with someone who's shooting up heroin and having sex with them especially an ex-girlfriend who you know is like we were in such a toxic dysfunctional relationship to when we were dating it was really stupid of me but whatever I've, I've learned my lessons hopefully and um, I go back up north to San Luis Obispo and I I'm go back and do drug court. I'm taking drug tests and thinking everything's fine. They're not going to test me for Kratom. Because, I mean, I looked up these Kratom drug tests. They were like 120 At the time, they were like $125 for one test. I was like, they, they do not even have the funding to, to give us a UA for alcohol every time. How are they going to afford a Kratom test? They're just... And they've lied to me before. I don't believe what the fuck they're telling me. Like, come on. That's stupid. Uh, there's They're just... They're, they're bluffing. Anyway, so... A few days after I get back, I've no I noticed that it kind of burns when I pee. Quite quite painfully. And so I um I'm pretty sure I have, you know, uh chlamydia or gonorrhea at this point. And so I go to this local uh STD testing place here called the center and I you know, I, I pee in a cup for them and, and uh and it turns out I have gonorrhea. <laughs> Can't believe I'm telling this fucking story. So they schedule an appointment with me to come in and get antibiotics. And so I'm about I, I schedule an appointment for that day at like twelve, and I'm like, okay, great, I'm gonna take care of this gonorrhea situation. <laughs> and um, during the while I'm waiting for my appointment, I get a call, and it's my probation officer, and my probation officer is basically is like, what are you doing right now? We need you to come in into our office. And I was like, well, well, yeah, okay, well, why? And they're like, it's about the results of your last drug test. And so now I'm shit scared. I'm like, oh, fuck, what? This is not good. Because, I mean, I can't believe they, I'm, I was shocked that they even told me that because usually they don't want to tell you it's about the results of your drug test because they, they're, they're afraid you're going to go on the run. So they're like, we need you to come in right now. Can you come in right now? And I was like, well, no, I have an appointment at 12 o'clock at the center. And they're like, well, why? Why do you have an appointment at the center? And I was like, well, I've contracted the gonorrhea. <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh, okay, we'll take care of that first. And then, then come in right after. <laughs> so I go to the center. I get a big shot of antibiotics in my ass cheek and a giant horse pill. And they say, okay, don't have sex for seven days. And I'm, I can't even, I'm, all I'm thinking about is how I'm about to get arrested. And uh, I go to see probation, and they basically call me in, handcuff me, and they're like, you tested dirty for Kratom. And I, you know, they take my phone, and, and I'm, I'm basically going to jail right there. I'm, they're not going to let me turn myself in. I'm going straight to jail. So, you know, and, and the, my probation officer's stupid little side, side, person is like, oh, Kratom's so bad. It's He thinks it's the same as spice and bath salts and, and K2 and all that shit. I'm like, dude, it's, it's fucking Kratom. Just just calm down. You're a probation officer and you don't know what drugs are. You really need to... Fuck off. So I go to jail and uh, I go to court 
the, the following Friday and I've already done like a couple, a few days and they're basically like, you know, I, I go, I get sent to court from jail. So I'm in oranges, I'm in shackles and they're like, well, what happened? Oh, I tested, tested dirty for Kratom. And they're like, all right, we'll do another three, four days and we'll let you out. And I have to basically, when you test dirty for drug court, you're, you, it's called fast tracking. So drug court is uh, 18 months of a program. First 12 months, there's four phases. Every three months you phase up. And then the last six months are aftercare where you're just like going to like a meeting once, um, like two meetings a month. And so I think I was in like phase two or phase, I was in phase three at this point. So I had to fast track and do a month of each phase to get back to my current spot in drug court. So now I'm pissed off in jail, having to do the rest of the weekend in jail. And um, I'm in this certain pod in San Luis Obispo County Jail was the 1800 wing. Now at this point in time, uh, 800 wing was still GP or gen pop. Um, I think at one point they moved all the PC people in because it got so overcrowded with people in protective custody. But at that moment, it's, um, it's general population when there's about like 60 or so people in there. It's a giant dorm with bunks and my side bunkies, this weird guy named like Ralph, this old, you know, biker looking dude with a beard. And so basically when you get to jail, they, at this particular jail, they assign you like this tumbler cup, a little water cup and an orange plastic spork that you have to have with you at all times to, um, to eat your food. So like when they serve you your meals, you have to take your spork with you. They like, when you're getting dressed out, they're like, here's your spork, here's your blanket, here's your tumbler cup. And you have to just wash your own spork and bring it with you to every meal. And then you have to turn it back in when you get released. So apparently someone has stolen my side bunkie's uh, spork and he's pissed about it. And you know, when you're in jail and someone, you think someone's fucking you over or when I've, I've seen people think someone's fucking you over, you're just stuck in a cell. You're stuck, stuck in this room all the fucking damn day. Maybe you get out for yard like once, maybe every day or every other day. So all you can do is just be stuck in your head trying to figure out who fucking jacked you. So, you know, and everyone else in there is bored out of their mind. So they're gossiping about a stolen spork. And it's like, really? Like, this is this is the most excitement you guys have is trying to figure out who stole someone's spork. And then so people are talking to my side bunkie like, well, so-and-so came in without a spork and now he has one. So he probably stole your spork and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like sitting back and looking at this, this complete, just this is this gossip and just stupidity. And I was like, Oh my God, this is so dumb. So my side bunkie's getting more and more pissed off, like talking about what he wants to do about the situation of his stolen spork. And so, uh, we get, you know, the next, like a few days go by and one, he's like, I'm going to do something about this. So one morning we get breakfast super early at like 5am. And so we get up and we're getting in line to get breakfast. And so my side punky Ralph, he goes to these stairs cause there's like two tiers in this pod and there's stairs to an upper tier. And this guy coming down the stairs is the guy he suspects of stealing his spork. So he's waiting at the bottom of the stairs and he's like, you going to give me back my spork, homie? 
you're going to give me back my spork? And this guy's looking at him like, I don't know what you're talking about. I honestly don't know if he it actually stole the dude's spork or not. But my side bunkie's convinced this guy stole my spork. He's like, you can give me my spork? Just give it back right now. Because, I mean, he's eating he's eating food with, like, like a fucking a milk carton that he, like, tried to fold into a some utensil. And he's just hating life. And so the dude is not self-admitting to stealing his spork, so... This, so Ralph just decides to start fucking wailing on him and just starts beating the shit out of him at the bottom of the stairs. And a few guys that are like around in the background just jump in the fight for the fuck of it. Be, not because they have anything to do with it or they have a stake in this in this beef. Just because when people start fighting and popping off, they want, they, they want in on it. So now there's five people fighting in this dorm. <laughs> And I'm trying to eat my fucking biscuits and gravy. And I'm like, oh shit, we're, this isn't, this is going to turn out bad. We're going to get, uh, we're going to get the SWAT team in here. And we're probably going to get maced the fuck out. And that's not going to be fun. So there's just like five or six people just beating the shit out of each other. And the guard serving breakfast is like this fucking little nerdy dude. And he's just like, Hey, Stop fighting. Just stop it. Stop fighting. And he's not willing. So he he's not going to go and separate this. He's greatly outmanned. So he calls in the backup. And cops swarm the place and mace the shit out of all these people. Mace the shit out of them. It's in the air. It's burning my eyes. I take my tray of food and go to my bunk. And I'm like, I'm, gonna, I'm eating over here. It, this shit hurts. <laughs> to breathe and everything. So they fucking mace the fuck out of these guys and drag them out. <laughs> My side bunkie, Rolf, is just screaming, yeah, f-, like just obscenities. And he's, his, his face is just covered in mace. It's fucked. And I, it's like, I'm across on the end, other end of the, of the fucking dorm. And my fucking eyes are burning. I'm choking on this shit. There's mace all in the air. So they clear us out of our pod and to the yard. And now we're sitting out here. The sun hasn't even gone up yet. It's still dark. It's that early in the morning. And I'm cold as fuck, dude. I mean, you know, it's not like you get a jacket there. You get a fucking... You get your white t-shirt and your orange... You know, your underwear, your socks, and your orange fucking gown or whatever the fuck you're... And so... And, and oh, yeah, sand, orange sandals. You know, they don't even give you shoes. So we're sitting out there for hours, just being cold as fuck while they're just airing out our fucking pot of the mace and just tearing up our bunks looking for pruno because people were brewing up pruno and they're in gassing bags so now they're just like well there's a fight it's an excuse to raid our whole pod for you know contraband and finally you know one of the head correction officers comes out and chews us the fuck out you know blames this fight all on and everyone else and like who lives there and and is like just giving us this whole lecture. I forget exactly what he said. It was this is fucking bullshit. Like it really like I'm just trying to eat biscuits, biscuits and gravy and go back to bed until you guys let us t- you turn on the TV so I can watch movies and d- and play spades and shit or whatever you know like read books like what it's boring as fucking jail. So finally, because our breakfast was totally contaminated with mace like an hours after the fact we're you know we're hungry they they let us back in they search each of us out they search my sandals and they 
there's like a drilled hole in my sand, my jail issued sandal with like lint stuffed in it. And they thought it was dope. I'm like, dude, you guys gave me this fucking sandal and it came like this. Like, what the fuck do you want me to do? Like, whatever. I, <laughs> I get it. There's a lot of drugs in that jail, but that is not, um, I, whatever. I didn't bring drugs in that. I should have, but no, I did not bring drugs into jail. And so we, they gave us new breakfast and we went about our day and it was just a fucked seven days, man. I, I fucking, on the last day of that sentence, I, I called my dad on the phone and he informed me that like my dog had died. My little dog, Zoe West Terrier had a little doggy heart attack and just dropped dead in our kitchen. And, you know, my dad explained he scooped up our dog and, and drove it to the the vet down the street, but by then it was too late. So, you know, my last day in jail, I'm, I'm witnessing boob op situations and, and, and having to, you know, not express my, my fucking sorrow that my dog is dead. And it's just a fucked up ass fucking thing. And for Kratom that is supposedly legal, but not when you're on drug court. No. So that's my story. One of my many jail stories. And, uh, I just want to give a shout out to our my guest B Casper. Thank you again for having or for coming on and um, just making time for this silly project of mine. And uh, I really, I really enjoy her content. It's an amazing podcast. Again, it's called That Time I Got Arrested. Everyone listening should go check it out. Show her some love. Um, you know, she's got a, a face. She's got a troll account on Facebook like me uh, called B Casper. You guys can reach out to my account on Facebook, Brian Unk Albert. Um, my name is stuck like that. Uh, I didn't choose that fucking name. I was dating someone when I was like DJing in LA. I had like f- several different DJ names, and my girlfriend at the time changed my name to that like seven times in a row. And now my. That account, it's stuck like that name. It won't ever let me change that name again. So I'm stuck with that name. (laughs) But anyway, I love you guys. You know, uh, I would love it if you guys sent me an email or a message. I I need feedback. I need to know how to improve this show and what you guys think of it. So nodsquadpodcast at gmail.com. You know, like all our social medias. And uh, I hope you're all doing well. I love you all. And... As always, peace, love, and all the above. Weird. I'm doing weird all the time. How are you? (laughs) I can relate. Um, you know, I've, I mean, I've, we've kind of chatted here and there, you know, online and stuff, but I've been at a rehab for the past nine months and it's the weirdness never ceases to stop. You know, like it's, I thought my life would get less chaotic when I kind of like mellowed out, but no, that's <laughs> definitely not the case at all. It just, it's no, because you're like more aware of everything that's happening, you know? Yeah. And plus, like, it's like I've never really been to an inpatient before. So it's a new environment. And 
it's like a free rehab. So the only free rehabs here are like Christian based rehabs. So that's weird for me because I've like literally never been to church a day in my life before I went there. So now like in the midst of like kind of integrating recovery and stuff, I'm having to learn about God and do Bible. I've never read the Bible before, before I came here. No, do you hate it? I mean, do you find value in it or does it turn you off? Because it turns me off. Um, I have mixed feelings about it, right? Because I've always been like, my spirituality before was smoking DMT in the woods and stuff. So, Same. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? So they have different people come and do Bible studies on different days. So some of them... They'll interpret like things in the Bible and I'm like, oh, cool. Be a better person. Do the right thing. Be nice to people. I'm good on that. But then another person will come in and totally turn me off and say shit like, oh, well, if you watch porn, that equates to the same thing as rape or (laughs) or like weird (laughs) sexist shit like women have this certain place in society. I'm just like and then it totally regresses any kind of progress I made with like trying to like acclimate into this whole thing. So I I'm like in this weird halfway point where I'm like, okay, I see the good in this, but then I get other people that just totally turn me off from organized religion entirely. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's fucking weird. So um, one who's like a hardcore zealot on anything, even when you meet people and and I sort of have been in this place before, too, and feel like I can often bounce in and out of this character now is where even when you're the person that's like, yeah, DMT, bro, (laughs) and and it's like I feel that in my soul the same way that I think an evangelical Christian does. But when you talk about it too much, when it turns into your identity, when it becomes its own dogma, then it sort of like loses its authenticity because your spirituality is really just your connection with your own existence and however you're choosing to interpret it. You know, so like as soon as you try and tell someone else their own existence, you're sort of like like becoming an oxymoron, you know? Yeah, exactly. I feel like it, a lot of these people's interpretations negates a lot of like the teachings that they were originally intended on, like, in like instilling upon people. So it's it just like, I feel weird about it. And then it's also weird because it's like, I used to be a huge weed smoker. So part of me is like, okay. And the, and like this weird fellowship of like NA and AA are, are kind of judgmental at the same time where it's like, well, you can't smoke weed, you can't do this or that. You're kind of like have to fully like participate in all their rules and policies or else you're completely alienated and ostracized from that group. But if you give in like and fully 100%, then you're like brought in and welcomed. And so it's just like, you know, I came in to rehab for fucking heroin. So it's like, I know people who've quit doing like hard drugs and just smoke weed and they've done that for like nine, 10 years. But then I, but then I'm, they're like telling me, well, if you smoke weed, you're going to go back to this or that. And so it, it's just a weird situation. And plus um, there's a homeless shelter right next door to our inpatient. So wow. yeah, there's been like issues with like residents, like hooking up with homeless chicks and <laughs> And, Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but like, of course, you know? Yeah. Oh, and like, and because it's a Christian based organization, there's no fraternizing with any females. So I've been just like, everyone in here is in the house is like losing their fucking minds, you know? Um, 
I bet. Well, because it's like a lot of times with treatment, and I was in treatment over this summer. Granted, mine was like a, like a lot different compared to what it sounds like you're describing. But I, I think that like it becomes this sort of like like culty vibe. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Definitely. I've yeah, like it is like, and I've had many people say the same thing. Like, what was your rehab experience like? Because I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast and. Um, first of all, major props, like super impressed with, with the quality and the content you've lived a pretty intense life. Um, <laughs> what yeah. I've heard, you know, what I've heard already. <laughs> word um, on the street. <laughs> yeah, word on the street. But what, what, I mean, you've only, how many times have you been to an inpatient facility? So the rehab that I was at over the summer wasn't, um, inpatient. It was intensive outpatient, but the only formal inpatient that I've ever done was when I got arrested while I was on parole. Um, so instead of violating my parole and going back to prison, prison, I ended up having to go to an inpatient rehab in Cook County um, of Chicago. So it was like in the actual county jail and it was an inpatient rehab in the jail and it was oh for 90 God. days. And now, I mean, there's a whole podcast episode about it. I, I didn't last a week. I ended up um, getting getting my lawyer to just let me serve my time in, like, regular county because it just sucked so bad. It was um, meetings from 8 to 8. And oh. and it is that sort of, like, that culty vibe where it's, like, you're, you're in NA now, you're in AA now, and it's, like, you found your higher power, which is obviously just, like, Jesus. You know, they don't really... Yeah let you say like the DMT aliens are your higher power. <laughs> they say that you can, but like, if you can't really, you know? Yeah. So it's like now, now you've like sworn your soul to Jesus and you know, just work it and it works. Like it's just <laughs> that simple. Right. Like, which I think is a, a bunch of bullshit. And, um, the treatment that I went to over the summer wasn't for, um, drugs. It was for depression. So it was like a little bit more chill. They didn't have this vibe of trying to convince you of, anything other than like your feelings are valid and like, it's okay to be sad, which I feel like is probably a great way to go about treating addiction. But, you know, I just happened to, you know, be there for like grief counseling. And, um, I did that in combined with this therapy called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So I had these like electrodes, basically like an MRI type of machine attached to my brain that sort of like zaps you and like makes you it's like weird it's like a sound you can feel it's very hard to describe what it was like but basically like zap certain parts of your brain so that you um you're like not sad and you don't want to die anymore holy shit that almost sounds like electroshock therapy sorry i'm driving to a um a parking garage right now but i'm about to be on the roof so it, it is very similar to that to electroshock therapy but minus the like um un, unpleasant like torture it's like make but make it modern you know electroshock therapy but make it modern okay and what were what was that like did you get any beneficial results from that or, or what was yeah that? um part part of the issue is they have to like map the parts of your brain where your your sadness is essentially and like where you carry um, emotion in your, like where your synapses aren't firing. And because I was left-handed, I had to spend a little bit more time doing the mapping. And it's 
like 17% less effective for people that are left-handed. So I kind of had a disadvantage going into it, but my results right away were like incredible. However, towards the end of my treatment, I, my grandmother died. And so it was kind of like I was there for grief therapy and then I experienced like a really intense loss and, um, it was just kind of like a perfect storm. So it worked, it was great. Um, but I feel awful. So I don't know. (laughs) You know, I've been there. I think a lot, but I mean, don't you think a lot of depression can be just completely situational and the things you're facing in life or the disconnection you have with people around you? Like, I mean, I've, I face depression all the time and a lot of the times it's for probably certain reasons that maybe I don't have like completely diagnosed. That's one thing I really love about your podcast is that you're really open about expressing what you're going through on that particular day, you know, <laughs> to my own detriment sometimes. You know? <laughs> um, but you, you said earlier you were doing inpatient in the prison. So what I'm yeah. curious is like, do prison politics come into play even though you're at this inpatient, especially in Chicago, no less. Oh yeah. Not only, I mean, well, the prison system in general is incredibly corrupt and, um, this is like a famous quote, but Illinois is the most corrupt state in the union. So being in the jail of Chicago is like notoriously the worst County jail in the entire country. I mean, I think the only one that rivals it is probably like Rikers in New York. Oh yeah. So it's a, it's a fucking scene. And, um, I mean, half the girls are high, half of them are, you know, like real life gangsters and like are not to be trifled with. Um, there's like a drug ring that is in and around the rehab. So, I mean, the girls are high and the, um, the officers are in on it. So it's kind of like a a fucking joke to be honest with you. And so it's like, how are you supposed to take that seriously when it's a joke? And there are people there who have to like keep up appearances. So they do the bare minimum. Um, they put you in these sort of like bullshit, you know, group situations. It's like, what can we do to put the least amount of effort into actually getting anyone better? And then, you know, turn a blind eye and sort of allow all of these women to continue to use drugs while they're in, you know, this rehabilitation program. So it's kind of like, I mean, I I think those situations are the most fucked that they could possibly be, honestly. Exactly. It's like a revolving door. They kind of want to make appearances like they're doing something, but the, the jails are so underfunded and they're privatized. So they really, are about recidivism and, and keeping them full. They have like occupancy contracts at most of these places anyway. So they're, it's big business making money off of locking people up. It's fucked. I was in, um, yeah, you know, I was at uh, twin towers in LA and the shit I saw in there was just ridiculous. There was drugs everywhere. And mm-hmm. like the last thing you would, I mean, when you're in jail, the the one thing I wanted to do was kind of feel, even for a brief second, that I was like not in jail. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was just like had stashes of drugs everywhere. So it was just like I, I the last thing on my mind was just like maintaining a sober lifestyle on there because I was just trying to get out of my own head because I was just trapped in it twenty four seven in a cell. So, but um, yeah, the you, first time I ever saw someone shoot up was in jail. Really? Yeah, yeah. 
How did they get a syringe in the jail? I mean, probably through the butthole, I'm sure, but <laughs> no, the, the guards, the guards are all in on it um, because <sighs> it is, it is privatized and it is a profit based industry and their job security depends on keeping people in jail. So they have no incentive. The people who run the jails, the people who work at the jails have no incentive to help anyone make anyone better. It's almost like the worst that they can perpetuate the like, you know, socioeconomic situation outside of prison that keeps them all there, like the better off their lives are. So it's like, it's been like that for so long that now it's just kind of ingrained into the culture. And like, they don't hire people unless they're on board to keep the oppression going. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, and your podcast, I mean, I'm, I'll give an intro in the beginning, but your podcast is literally called That Time I Got Arrested, and you've said you've been arrested like over 100 times. Um, yep. So your, your, your criminal record must be insanely long. Like, Yeah, it's like 22 pages, I think. <laughs> so um, have you even looked into like expunging, like trying to expunge it? like even the little misdemeanors are like that. But at this point it's just, or are you just like, well, it is what it is. There's just really my, my background is pretty much fucked for interviews and background checks. My background is definitely fucked. Um, next year, uh, or actually no, this year, this year, this July, I qualify for an expungement uh, or not an expungement. I'm sorry. Um, I don't, I don't qualify for an expungement because I went to prison. So mm -hmm what I would have to do is uh, petition the governor for a pardon of my sentence. So it's like, you wait the same amount of time, um, seven years. Uh, so this July will be seven years since I went to prison and, um, the governor previous to the one we have currently was approving like a record number, like 20%, but it costs like $10,000 and it takes like a year of litigation and you have to like, write this whole packet and get a bunch of people to like write character references and like prove that you've like done something with your life and you have a reason to get this taken off of your record to receive a pardon. And then, I mean, it's like really the thing that it affects the most is my ability to, um, I mean, not just like a background check, but to like rent an apartment. Like I can't rent an apartment on my own because everywhere you go does a background check. And I have 13 drug felonies, including like a class X. So it's like, no one wants to rent a place to me, you know? Yeah. What is a class X um, specifically? Um, so a class X felony in the state of Illinois means that you have, um, it pertains to like large amounts of really intense drugs. So like depending on the schedule of the drugs, so like LSD is a class X felony, like, mm -hmm. um, and like 500 grams of heroin or something like that. Like those are like class X felonies. It's yeah. And I, from what I've researched, I think psychedelics give a really heftier charge than, than like harsh cocaine. street drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Crack cocaine, like crack cocaine is like a class, um, two or even a class three, but like LSD is a class X or DMT is a class X, you know, like that's so insane when you think about it. Like when you think about that chemically. Yeah. And I mean, from my experience, like from my personal drug use DMT, I had the most beneficial results from as far as consumption, I mean, it's in, it, it like exists in every living ecosystem and your brain produces it. So it's like, I mean, I mean, not to be a conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theorist, but it's like, it seems like the, the substances that make you challenge critical thinking and question like 
organic <laughs> structures in here are like the ones that are most outlawed. You know what I'm saying? It's of course, of course. Well, I mean, I think everything is a conspiracy. I'm like one of those kind of psychos. You know, I'm like they're out to get us. The government <laughs> wants to control you. It's yeah. just a matter of time before they're trying to put chips in all of us. Like I don't do any of those stupid fucking filters on Instagram on my face because I'm like, what? This is for facial recognition software. Like you walk into a Whole Foods and like you are being scanned right now because Amazon owns them. So like. Uh, yeah, um, in my opinion, yeah, obviously all of that stuff is made the most illegal because they don't want you, they don't want your mind to be open. They don't want you to think for yourself or think that maybe all of this is a lie, you know, because maybe it is though. Yeah, I always have to, like, I used to be deep, deep into that, but I always have to check how far down the rabbit hole I go down now because it's just like, how much of this shit do I really want to know anymore at this point where I'm just like walking down the street in fear of everything? I just don't. Like uh, the things I've researched already are enough to where I'm like, okay, this is, this is fucked. The whole memes of Epstein didn't kill himself. Well, yeah, dude, like there's <laughs> fucking crazy shit going on that I rather like you can go on the dark web and order a hitman for $10,000. You think billionaires aren't going to shave off like a few hundred thousand to off people that have inside information on them. It, it just, and even bringing that up in a podcast, I'm like, oh shit, did I just say that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, no, I understand your your fear to, to say that kind of stuff publicly because we do live in this era where we are experiencing what Big Brother is like because they can just flip a switch and turn on the microphone that you keep in your pocket that you paid for, you know? So it's like, oh, it's yeah. terrifying. <laughs> yeah, Snowden already leaked all that. They, you, your phone can turn on a camera, track your location, record your audio, and send it to some server somewhere and have just a whole record and file on, on all your actions and, and doings out in the world. So, yeah, it's fucking terrifying. Let me ask you this, because I know a lot of people with criminal records. I, I hung out with a lot of drug users in my day. But do you feel when you're like socializing out there with friends and stuff, do you pull back on on your past like criminal convictions or and save that to open up for the podcast or or do you feel like you have to keep like an appearance of like normalcy with people out there? Because I always struggle with that. Like meeting, especially when I'm like trying to date somebody, um, you know what I'm saying? Like it, yeah. it's weird, <laughs> you know, it's so weird. It's so weird. And it's so difficult to navigate. I think I spent so much of my life not telling anyone anything real, you know, because I was afraid of how, it would honestly, I was afraid of how it would make people treat me. I didn't want them to ever feel bad for me or feel like they were like nervous around me or just feel like I was different than them, honestly. So like, I think I just spent so long, like straight up like lying. Like if you met me before I jumped off a building, like you would never know any of this stuff about me at all. Even people that would have called themselves like my best friends didn't know the majority of the stuff that I put into the podcast, but I think after I had, and this is what it took for me. So I don't know what it would take for anyone else really, or you in general, but just like I jumped off a building, I had a near death experience. And then I kind of just got to a point where I was like, okay, actually this is who I am and I'm not going to pretend to be anyone else. So my experience is now I'm like almost like way, way, way too upfront about my shit. And it's difficult. I see people recoil. I see people like not want to get close to me or like act kind of cagey and nervous around me or, or really like question my intentions a lot just because they don't know what to expect. Because when you're kind of like, um, 
unhinged, you know, or like a wild card, how, however you want to spin it. You know, if you're, if you're just like a little bit of a weirdo, um, it, it makes people nervous because we all, I think are trying to pretend to be more normal than we sort of, um, taught throughout the course of our lives to, to hold ourselves in, to hold our emotions in and to hold like our real feelings about what we're going through in. And I think that that's why it's so much easier for millennials to communicate via text versus like having like a real eye contact conversation and and sharing something and being open. And that's where probably like the main motivation for my show comes from is just sort of like, here's, here's what it's really like. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally get that. And, um, I honestly feel like the, how open you are, in your podcast is what people definitely connect with. And that realness, like I, I, I did the same thing. I was, I've kind of reclused around people in physical social settings, but then on, on my project, I just opened up about all the, as much as you know, I could and people tuned into that. They want to hear all that, that horribly raw shit that you've gone through and that you're still maybe going through and challenges, you know, cause you, like I've heard you say it before, social media is such a fake, like smoke and mirrors personification of how people want their lives to appear. And it's not like that at all. Like people want to act like they have no problems and they're not going through shit. And, and I think that's maybe one of the other reasons why depression is more rampant when they, people are comparing their lives to that that's on digital media. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big one. And that's like, it's so insidious and then we don't really like talk about how, not that people don't talk about how bad social media is. Cause I know that that's like a pretty common conversation, but we don't really talk about like how we're all sort of contributing to this like commercialized version of our existence. I wish that social media was more of a place where we could have conversations openly. Like I want to fucking die right now. And have that not be a situation where someone's like, oh, do we need to call someone? Like, should we take away her shoelaces? Like, <laughs> oh, maybe yeah. we should talk about how the, you know, the world is burning, how sometimes we don't know what to do, how it's very often and easy to feel like powerless and helpless to this like fucking spinning hellfire of a political system that we have. And it's like, how are we supposed to like rise up, you know, together if we can't even like be open about what is actually happening every day, which isn't like fucking avocado toast and like self care. No? <laughs> exactly. I th- yeah. And I think a lot of people are afraid to even speak out on those types of issues out of being like punished for them. Like people don't want to like, I know a lot of people would be afraid to even say they feel like they want to die because they'll be put fear of being put in a rubber room and just forgotten about it's, it's fucking insane, you know? And and like, even when I'm at the fucking rehab I'm at, people like, I'll go into meetings and people will talk about how great their life is and this and that. And it's like, I don't, but the, I, I have little connection with that because it's like, dude, I go through struggles all the fucking time. It's not like everything is fucking roses and peaches that I'm fucking clean and sober. Like I deal, now I have to deal with shit like without numbing out to any of that. And that's, and it's crazy too, because I see people that go in, get a few years clean and then they fucking go right back out. So it it just blows my fucking mind. And I'm just like, and then there's times when it's like, okay, I feel lost. 
because it's like, where do I fit in this? Am I the type of like, what hope do I have for myself if all these other people are dying all around me? You know, it's fucking crazy. I think that's like a, a really important like question to ask though, is just like, how are we really treating addiction in our culture? You know, how are we deciding to handle it and, and like make it better for people? And the way we go about it now, it's like, you admit that you're wrong, that you're the problem and that you can't stop yourself and then and then it's like and then you've got to do all this work and then you're and then you're better you know what I mean it's like if you just do these few things then you're better but I don't think that that's relevant to like a modern culture anymore and I've said this on the show but I really feel this like so deeply is that addiction isn't really like um isn't isn't a disease or like a lack of control or like this like weird thing that you have in your mind that you can't get over I think it's more like a lack of connection and like a lack of purpose. And like, that's why they try to give you this like higher power bullshit to make you feel like you're connected to something, but that doesn't resonate with everyone. And I think that more like beneficial to people would be like, what do you connect to? And like, how can you find a deeper like meaning and value in your life? And, and then like, and then go on the path, like forgiveness and love, you know, of like self-love that doesn't have to be like you know, any one specific thing. And so it's like, if we could change that conversation, then I feel like we could change the way, you know, addicts are treated and then sort of, I don't know. It's like, there's so many things that need to change. It's hard to, to pinpoint exactly what, but I do feel like the biggest thing with addiction is just saying that like, there's, there's this path, um, that gets you, that gets you out of it. And a lot of the path is like a lack of, um, a lack of control maybe, you know, or like surrendering. But, um, but I do feel like you have to connect, you know, that like they're telling you to surrender and, and my advice is connect, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think there's so many different things going on in our society that would cause a, a, a disconnection, you know, that it's like, it's almost like society needs to be diagnosed in itself <laughs> because like, I mean, from what I've seen, uh, Drug use, addiction, overdose rates, they're higher than they've ever been before. And like the, the war on drugs in itself is causing like like the the black market profitability of these substances to skyrocket anyway. So it's like why would anyone stop making money if if it's working for them in the ways it does? It just it's fucking, it's crazy. And then like, yeah, like back to conspiracy theories, it's like, yeah, we've seen CIA fucking smuggle cocaine in this world to to (laughs) flip it and buy guns for like other militias. And so it's just like, I I really am just like, at this point, I'm just, I'm just kind of like wipe my hands from the situation. And I'm like, you know, this is so much bigger than I could ever like think to like fix, you know, it's like kind of a broken system that I've been just seeing over the years. Um, and have you heard about that thing in Sweden that they did with the, um, the heroin addicts? They had something like a crazy, like a crazy in the 80 to 90% success rate where instead of like arresting them or, um, putting them in rehab or anything like that, they like literally just gave them heroin every day and people Mm -hmm. stopped using it. (laughs) Yeah. They, they do that. Um, in Switzerland and Spain too. It was like, a heroin treatment program where you get a government issue shot of heroin, um, almost like a methadone clinic gives yeah, you yeah. drugs. But they also were seeing like um, 
human resource specialist to provide them housing and help them get businesses started and help them get their life back on track. And usually, I mean, from what the success rates have shown is like people were more able to like build a life for themselves and taper off of those drugs and, you know, disease rates plummeted, um, overdose rates plummeted. And I, I wish there were more progressive, like, um, politicians here to even consider that you put a, you put a, um, a safe injection site or a needle exchange somewhere and everyone freaks the fuck out, um, and try to sweep all these like negative aspects of, over the city and the people therein under the rug. And it's like, well, they're going to go somewhere, you know? So, um, I, I, and like, I don't know this. I actually interviewed somebody who was in Switzerland in one of those programs and, um, he was talking about those kind of benefits and I just don't, I, I don't ever see someone here trying to fight for that kind of cause. I mean, I, that would be nice if they did. I just think a lot of politicians are just under the pocket so much that they're going to, they're going to dictate an agenda that of whoever's paying them the most basically. Yeah, um, totally. That's why it's like, it's fucked because I mean, you can see obviously what's wrong and you can see the people that won't change what's wrong. So it's like, what are we supposed to do other than, I don't know, do I feel like what you're doing right now with your podcast and what I'm doing with mine, it's like that to me in, in the current situation, like is the answer. It's like, you have to figure out a way to connect with people and to express yourself. And I think that that will sort of like heal, whether it's addiction or depression or whatever the fuck is wrong with anybody, you know? No, I totally agree. I, and, um, yeah, thank you for that. It's like the, I've faced a lot of weird challenges to, um, try and navigate how I even wanted to format this whole project because it's like when I first started, I had just gotten, I had just like come out of a bad overdose, had to get hit with naloxone like four times. And so I was just like starting up and I was like in and out of like relapsing on heroin. So there's just episodes that are just fucking, I think the, the like the first few episodes I was either dope sick or I was fucking loaded. And so, um, it, which was like not, I, it, so I was like, now that I'm like a, away from kind of that past, at least for, for right now, I've can kind of see like how I'm trying to like be more conscious of what kind of message I'm trying to portray, um, to anyone listening. Cause I'm not trying to glamorize things I did, but at the same time, I don't want to be like a preachy recovery based like channel because that's not, that's for an individual to, to decide for themselves. I'm not trying to tell people use drugs, but I'm not trying to tell them, Oh, everything's about 12. So there's a million recovery based podcasts or YouTube channels out there. And it's like, I just want if people are going to use drugs and make that decision for themselves to be safe and responsible about it. So it's like this weird fine line I've been having to navigate where I'm not too preachy too like what triggering for some people, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's crazy because it's like I'll have people on in my rehab who are super NAAA 12 step oriented. So they you'll get kind of that kind of message sometimes, but then sometimes like some people who listen are like, I just want to hear the crazy war stories. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's like a challenge, especially even just doing a fucking um, podcast in rehab. Like 
I can't, I'm still amazed that the staff there is even allowing me to bring a portable mic into that place and let us talk about crazy shit, you know? And some of the things that even go on within that house, I'm not even really at liberty to discuss because of like, like client confidentiality and stuff. Like what challenges have you faced when starting like your podcast that you've noticed has just been kind of like, yeah, a challenge to like even maintain? Well, I mean, I feel like when I kind of similarly, when I first started, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew that I had a lot of stories and I was like, okay, I can like tell my stories and then I'll, and then I'll interview. And so I started like interviewing people on different times that they had been arrested, but I found that it was really hard for other people, especially who didn't have the same kind of life experiences that I did. I thought what I was doing was like building credibility with my audience by like being so open. And so that way, when I had conversations with other people, you know, anyone who was listening could be like, yeah, this girl knows what she's talking about. But when I had conversations with other people, I figured out that I wasn't good at having conversations (laughs) with other people. And that I also, I also saw how hard it was for other people to open up about, you know, what for some was like the worst experiences of their life was getting arrested and like all of the consequences that they had to face because of that. So I sort of like had to, you know, go back into the kitchen, like scrap it all. And, and now I feel like what the podcast is, is like this weird sort of like diary where I'm just like spilling my guts out in a way that is very often like uncomfortable and unpleasant to me at times. Yeah. And um, I mean, the challenges are like, you know, it's, it's great to, to connect with people so much, but then it's also like weird for people to know me so well and not actually know me. Like I'll tell you like kind of a funny, weird story. So I, there was like this cute boy that I met and we lived in, in different States and we liked the same music. So whenever we saw each other, it would be like to see a concert. And so we had like kissed and flirted and, and maybe like hooked up a little bit. Um, like once, you know, and then like flash forward. Now we're like two years later, like friends, like see each other again. And so when I met him the first time, like I had never, I didn't have the podcast. And then when I saw him again, like two years later, like, yeah, we were friends, but he didn't really know me like, like me in real life, but he, but he listened to the show. And so we were going to like, honestly, we were going to like hook up and we like went to his Airbnb after this concert for this band that we love. And he started quoting me to oh myself <laughs> and I'm just so like, like I liked him and like, I wanted to be there and I wanted to hook up with him. But as soon as he, like, he, like he almost scared me away. Well, he did. He scared me away with my own intimacy. <laughs> <laughs> he quoted me and I was so weirded out, especially because the stuff I share on there is like, it's beyond what I would consider personal. You know, it's like, yeah. it's stuff that I haven't told, you know, my best friends and also like, you know, my family doesn't know that stuff, like stuff I haven't even talked about in, in fucking therapy. So just my lit- my literal secrets. And then this guy is quoting them to me and I'm like, well, I can't fuck you now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went and like slept in the other room and it was so weird. And him and I have not been like chill ever since just because like how fucking weird is that? And I'm like, yeah, like, let's go back to your place. And then we're at his, at his place. And he's like, he's like telling me how much he likes the show. And I'm so weirded out that I'm like, ah. No, I know exactly what you mean because (laughs) I just found out my mother listens to my podcast and, and I had to like tell her the last time I saw her, I was like, mom, like 
that's fine. You you can listen to my podcast, but once you first of all, once you open Pandora's box, it will never close itself again. And yeah. just please, as I told her, just please don't tell me about or comment or give me feedback because I talk about <laughs> the most debaucherous, horrible shit I've ever done in my life. Yeah. And I I mean, my dad is like, yeah, I listened to 10% of it and that's all I need to hear. <laughs> and my mom is giving me feedback and, and like, I don't know if, it's, if she's wanting to connect with me now that I'm like doing better in my like life or something. But it, it's like, do I talk about horrible, horrible things? And so it like I'll get stuck in my head if I'm doing recordings like future recordings like oh I I'm like should I hold back on this and that's something I don't ever want to do I kind of just wanted to like let it out there and let have it flow naturally so yeah it, it's it's just weird you know um and also I am horrible at interviewing people <laughs> also so just throwing that's it out hard. there it's, it's so hard it is. I mean, when I'm when I'm like just having friends on and we're we're just like having a natural conversation, it's so much easier. But if I get an email and it's like a, a higher profile guest or whatever, I, I get super nervous. I'll trip up on questions and try to keep conversation flowing. But it's like awkward and and it's just it's not easy, you know, like so even no. now. Don't make it. Joe Rogan makes it look easy, but it's not. <laughs> well, Jimmy, Joe Rogan's been doing it for for how God knows how long I, I've true, been, true. yeah I've been listening to him for like that podcast was like one of the first and like most successful but I mean he's been doing he, and plus he does stand up so I think that also helps with like you know um articulating thoughts and stuff like more like precisely it, it's funny because um I actually I would listen to Joe Rogan like at night because I think like, or, or even when I was a kid, my mom would put on like stand up, like on vinyl to help me like sleep at night. So then the podcast cool. was like that natural evolution. And you've, you said you're, you do stand up as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing, I started doing stand up um, before the podcast, but the like stand up led me into the podcast, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean that, from what I've been told, that's just such an, it, like for me, it feels like such an, an intimidating process to get up on stage and let all your fucking feelings out there <laughs> and then possibly just get that, like maybe you get an applause or laughs, but then I, I've heard comedians say sometimes people, they just bomb on stage and it's like, <laughs> God, it feels so sh like horrible. And um, every comedian yeah. <laughs> faces it, like every single comedian, even like the most successful ones I've seen, so... Oh yeah. Yeah. It's part of it. You have to, you have to, because it makes you tough. But, um, but yeah, it is one of the most soul sucking, like, um, unrewarding experiences <laughs> of my entire life. I don't know why I do it. Everyone who does it is absolutely mean and crazy. So, um, just being aligned with anyone who calls himself a, a comedian is basically like saying like, I'm an asshole and that's <laughs> cool you know <laughs> but um but yeah I do, I do it I do it I do it and I have um I have two shows coming up next week <laughs> you want to plug them real quick <laughs> yeah if you're um if you are in Chicago you can catch me at the Sedgwick stop on January 25th at 10 p.m or you can catch me at my buddies at January 22nd at 8 p.m I'll be at both of those nice cool and I've I th you didn't, you didn't, you recently do, uh, something at the laugh factory not too long ago. Uh, 
Yeah. So, so I, that's kind of like my home club in Chicago. It's pretty much where I started and, um, have like grown there. So I am not booked there regular, regularly, nor do I like, uh, produce a show, but my, my like bigger shows that I've done in Chicago have been there. I like won a couple of competitions and was on XM radio, um, but through the laugh factory. Yeah. Oh, that's fucking awesome. That's how I, that's how I started really is I started doing comedy competitions and then um, when I would win them I would like get more shows. L- let me ask you before you even found comedy what were you did you have other creative outlets before stand up before the podcast was there any other things you were like working on or were you kind of trying to figure that out? Um so I'd say I was always I've always been a writer. Um when I was younger and in college I was like really into writing slam poetry like oh, so nice. embarrassing but I was like, it was a scene and I was into it you know like think like real angsty like 16 to like 19 like that was like my slam poetry years so that was kind of my start as far as like writing and performing um through slam poetry I ended up writing like like music and like songs so I would write like silly little like love songs from like a toothbrush to like a bicycle tire and, um, just kind of like these weird little like parodies. And then, um, and then eventually that turned into like jokes and podcasting. So I'd say mostly I've always just been a writer. It's just like, how, what am I going to write? You know? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, one other thing I wanted to just pick your brain at was, was like relationships because, ah! <laughs> because honestly, like the, the relationships you've described are, have, <laughs> they're what abusive <laughs> oh yeah I've been, I mean I connect with so much of what you describe as like crazy toxic relationships that you've been in in the past with with abusive people I mean I've had ex-girlfriends lunge at me and try and stab me on a, a few occasions it was and, fun yeah sometimes with <laughs> a syringe sometimes with a box cutter it's like, how do you know you're in love if it's not crazy you know <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely more passionate. Um, but <laughs> I always was always asking myself, like, why and how is it that I end up in these relationships? And I still am looking for that answer. Do you have like, what knowledge have you gained from the traumatizing relationships you've been in in the past? <laughs> well, I think I I was in a lot of traumatizing relationships because I had a lot of trauma that I never healed from. I had a, you know. A, pretty diplomatic of me to say that I had like a chaotic childhood but beyond Mm -hmm. that you know I just experienced like a lot of trauma in my adolescence from um, losing a parent you know as a teenager and then having to become an adult and then going to prison and then having all the experiences that I had while I was incarcerated um, which sort of like turned itself into its own its own addiction issue but never healing from all that like all the way from from the start um, really just set the set the ground for me to find myself in all of these abusive relationships and think that that's what was normal because that's what felt good and like home to me. So like oh, yeah. it sounds it sounds fucked up because it's like you don't really realize it when it's happening that like the reason that you're there is because that is actually what feels good. You know, like looking back, you're like, wow, that was so bad. But while it was happening, I was like, no, this is what I need. You know, so what I've learned is that I am not capable of being in a relationship <laughs> and, um, that I have a lot of healing to do. And that I think that until I'm 
got some like sure footing and that I really start to feel um, okay and like this is God, I hate saying this shit because it sounds so gay but it's like <laughs> until I start to feel like like worthy and like love myself and feel safe like without anyone else's you know support or um, like input, then I can't really attract like a healthy relationship into my life. So I feel like I can't do relationships and that that's okay. Cause I'm sort of always been in one because I always felt like I needed to like be in love with someone, even if that love was really bad. Yeah. It's like the chaos is familiar. So it bleeds out into other forms of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I feel that so hard. And, um, and it's just another way to like self-harm. Um, and to, to avoid, you know, learning how to do all the hard work that we have to do to be okay, which like sucks, but you know, that is so real. Yeah. I identify with that fully. Do you feel like, um, do you feel like there are, from what you've experienced with past relationships, you face trust issues with future people that you become interested in or involved with? Yeah. I mean, I feel like so bad for the next person I date because (laughs) They have their work cut out for them, you know, and like, hopefully I'm in a better place, but I also just feel like, I don't know, like I have a hard time with men because I don't think that our society is built to teach them how to be fully formed human beings. Like I read this really great quote that like rings so true because when I meet one of these guys, I like can immediately sense the difference in them versus basically everyone else. But it's like, we're not going to change the world by telling women that they can do anything that men can do. Like we're going to change the world by teaching men how to be more like women. And so it's like when they can become more in touch with their emotions and their empathy and their compassion and their like openness, like when men can feel safe being emotional, then it's like the world will really change, you know? But until that, it's like kind of like, I mean, I don't know how you feel about the patriarchy because you are a white man. So it's like, (laughs) You know, like it's like good for you, I guess. But I, but I do think that it also is like bad for you because it makes all men feel like there is some sort of um, like problem with being vulnerable. And until, oh, yeah. you know, until we can all do that safely, then like then we're all we're all fucked, you know? Yeah, it, it's 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 nice getting a female's perspective on that because yeah, men are afraid of opening up and getting vulnerable all the time based at, and in a lot of it's fear of how they're going to be like perceived as, you know? Yep. Um, and so that a lot of my fellow males have their guard up to even divulge certain things that may have affected them or damaged them emotionally because you, it feels like the, in the media or any other kind of, aspect is saying or instilling like you need to portray yourself as being self-sufficient independent and having your shit together and i've there's so many people like the majority i feel like secretly underneath that's that fucking surface a lot of people just don't have that their shit together and they're like one or two bad weeks away from just exploding and, and going off the deep end and it's weird because being a white male, figuring out where I fit into society with all this crazy shit going on in 2019 and 2020, you know, it's crazy. I, I even recognize like I was tripping on acid once with my friend and we got in this crazy like 
drug excursion with, with some gang members in San Francisco. And I finally was able to check my privilege and being like, Oh yeah, this is what is going on. You know, it's, <laughs> it's weird. So but it's like, it, it's hard because I, I experienced that too. When I went to jail where it was like, I had no, I like, you think, you know, I thought that I was like woke. And then I went to prison and I was like, Oh, I have, I had no idea what was actually going on. You know? Yeah. Oh no. I mean, it definitely is like a humbling experience in, in a, in a brutal sort of way being thrown into that kind of pit where, you know, the inmates are basically making running and making rules and you basically have no choice but to adapt to this system or you're getting fucked with in, in California, we call getting like smashed out or something, getting boobopped or, or people getting jumped. And there's a whole hierarchy of punishment if you don't abide by the the code amongst your fellow residents there did you like for me when I was anytime I was in jail it was like this weird ratio where I had to try and follow the the rules that the correction officers are imposing on us and but then also follow this code of what inmates are wanting me to do for for whatever my rep or the crew that I had to be associated with because of just how things have been there for hundreds of years. So I have to like (laughs) fucking dance around and try and get away with doing shit for people, but not be taken advantage of or manipulated by others. And then also try and keep from getting an ad charge. It's fucking. Uh, Yeah. It's its own little ecosystem for sure. And it's like, um, it is, it is very hard to navigate. And I, I don't even know. It's like its own world that it was built to like legalize slavery. You know, that's what it's all about. But it's interesting how like racially divided, like, um, the inmates are like how much they divide themselves within that like self-imposed system, you know? Yeah. I mean, different counties have, I've seen it a little bit either more or less, like strict in that aspect. But I mean, in LA County, it was in completely race segregated and there was all these rules of like, you couldn't walk to that table. You couldn't go to this area. Um, and it was new to me cause I, I never had even thought in constructs like that until you're in it and you have a whole like building full of people that are like hardwired to operate under those circumstances. So it was new and foreign to me to even like perceive things like that. And even when I'm in this rehab, there people are have been so used to that like institutionalization that sometimes that comes out and you, you see the same thing in like the building even. It, it's it it creates so much more damage to people mentally than I think the powers that be are willing to admit. And the fact that we even have um no, I think they know. I think they know and I think they like it. And I think that that's part like so much of the societal oppression that has gone on within poverty is this like perpetuation that education is like evil and that like and that white people are like like all white people are there to like fuck you up. So it keeps them segregated. It keeps them ignorant and it keeps them like, you know, existing within the own, their own subculture, which is this like gang microcosm that they create to take care of like their community essentially. So it's like completely out of necessity. But I think that that aspect of it is like exactly what the conspiracy of the prison population and like the prison industrial complex is trying to, to hang on to. It's like, if they can keep people 
dumb, if they can keep people separate, then we don't all realize that together we have like so much more power and we could actually, you know, like there's more of us than there are of them. Of course, you know, that's why they have to keep the them like pacified or keep the us pacified, you know? Yeah. Divide and conquer by any means necessary. That's (laughs) well, um, I, we're almost no. at about an hour, but I could talk to you for for much longer. You've it's you very you know intelligent, articulate person, and I'm so thank you again for coming on. I know we took a while to like it took me a while to try and schedule a day that we were both free to have you on, and I mean plus like I don't get to like leave my rehab that often. I'm all like it's a 12 month program, and I'll be done soon. So oh that'll my goodness. be good. Yeah, yeah. I know. Oh, well, I chose the I chose that instead of a ninety day one because I was like, I need a, a year sabbatical to figure my shit out. Um, you know, and I'm still and now like nine months into it, I'm still figuring like I figuring out. I have no idea <laughs> what to, what's going on, but I I have a better idea. But like that's going to be like a lifelong process. But is there anything you want to say to anyone listening right now? No, I just want to tell you actually that, um, when you're done with rehab, um, we should figure out a way to a meet in person and B, um, you should be on my show too, obviously. Right. Oh yeah. I would love to come on your show. That'd be awesome. You're in Chicago now, but do you frequent the West coast? Yeah. So, um, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, do you know where Balboa Island is like right outside of Newport? Yeah. It's that's South of Huntington. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's where that's where I'm from. Um, so I have like family out there and I'm, I'm there about two or three times a year. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, obviously stay in touch. Um, and anytime you're out here, yeah, feel free to hit me up. I actually just got my car back. I'm allowed to drive and rehab again and have a phone. So <laughs> yeah, the applause to me, everybody. Thank you. Um, no, those are big steps. Those are, I mean, like I remember when I got my phone back when I got out of jail and it was like one of the best moments of my life. Yeah. Well, they, they don't allow you a phone for the first nine months, no car, you can't work, you can't be in a relationship. I mean, and a part of that is good. So I can focus on getting uncomfortable and dealing with my issues. But now it's like having to reintegrate into all these things and deal with outside people. I'm not in a, like a safety bubble anymore. You know, I'm working and going to school and it's almost like the last three months is like, um, a sober living kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but, um, yeah, let's definitely link up. Um, thank you for coming up and yeah, it was just, it was a pleasure having you on. Oh, thank you for having me. I love you. I love what you're doing. So (laughs) if you guys want to check out my show that time I got arrested, you know, you know how podcast works. Yeah. On iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere there's podcasts available. You can check it out. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye. Oh, fuck me.